How does the suffering and the resurrection of Christ affect your daily life? I just want you to ponder that, think about that. Because as we look at this passage, we, we will see that the disciples are very confused about the resurrection. The disciples need clarity, and Jesus will continue to clarify for them and to communicate to them. Uh, but it is by the grace of the resurrection that their confusion will be made ultimately clear. And we're those who are living post those who can look back to see the truth of Christ. And so much more, it should affect our lives and the reality of the resurrection and the suffering of Christ in what that means for us daily. We live in a society that's confused about the resurrection. Many speak of a resurrected life in a way that they just mean how to have a better life, how to turn your life from something that feels dead to something that is alive. Many false teachers, such as a man named Kenneth Copeland, uh, who spews lies, proclaims that you can unlock resurrected power in your life. And that through that, you then can claim health and wealth and prosperity, that those are yours, that the resurrected life is something now. He communicates it in a way that says, uh, what happened in the garden is that we were robbed of our deity our connection to Christ. We were robbed of it. And now Christ has restored it. Therefore, by the blood of Jesus, we can claim all things to be ours. And he proclaims that the resurrected life is now. That now you can demand things of the world. You can demand what you want. You live in a resurrected life by simply declaring all things to be yours and all things for him, meaning health, wealth, and prosperity. Proclaims that you can't deny sickness, that all Christians should, if they're faithful, live to 120 years and can rebuke any illness, can rebuke any disease. And I love that he adds any lack. Anytime you don't have money. It is attractive to people because our lives live very focused, often as Daniel reminded us this morning, on this life. Our lives remain daily focused on our health, our wealth, and our prosperity. We frequently think of what is passing and what is fleeting as what is most important. We set expectations based on our desires for the present life, and we fail to listen what the resurrection means for all of life. The resurrection of Jesus is not a philosophy. It is not a mind change. It is not about a mental state. It is not about the pursuit of things and how you can change from a person who thinks one way to a person who thinks a different way because of a resurrected, quote unquote, life. The resurrection of Jesus is a literal fact that he has risen from the dead. And that fact has serious implications. The reality of that fact declares the promises of God true. It is the center point of history declaring that God has done as he has said, and he will continue to do as he has said. The resurrection is not a philosophy. It is a reality. 
as Paul is preaching in Acts 17 uh, to pagans in Athens. He says, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but he now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Saying man everywhere must repent. The ignorance of sin is no longer overlooked. You must repent and put your hope in a man, a man whom he has appointed to be the judge over all things. And Paul says, how do we know that this man is appointed by God as judge over all things? In verse 31 of Acts 17, he says, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Romans 4.25 says, Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespass and raised for our justification. That Jesus was delivered up, he died for our sin, and he was raised that we would be justified, that God would look at us just as if we had never sinned. That we would be given full clearance, and in him full righteousness, that's Romans 4, 25. I know none of these are in your handout, but I promise they're in your Bible. 2 Corinthians 4, 14 promises that because he is the judge over all things declared by his resurrection, and because in his resurrection we are declared justified as our hope is in him, we are free from the penalties of sin. 2 Corinthians 4.14 says, Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into his presence. The resurrection declares that Christ will judge. It declares his people have been judged as cleansed because of his death. And the resurrection declares he will raise his people up with him in his presence. Colossians 2, 12 through 15 says, As we have been buried with him in baptism, in which we were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. In verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. He has paid the penalty. He has freed you to live in Christ, free from sin, canceling your debt, canceling your trespasses giving you freedom in Christ, complete freedom from sin, to live for him. Christian, you are the only people on earth that can choose to live for the glory of God because of the resurrection of Christ. First Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10 says, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Paul writes of the Thessalonians the remembrance of their conversion and how they turned to God from the idols of their society, from pagan sexual immorality, 
from the worship of things and the pleasure of things, from political power, from murder and envy and strife, from prostitution and abuse and unfaithfulness. How they turned from the idols of their worship, which they worshiped with sin, to serve the living and true God. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes to them and he says, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Because of the resurrection of Christ, all people will be judged rightly by Christ. And because of the resurrection of Christ, his people will be justified from their sin. And because of the resurrection of Christ, we will not forever remain here in the world condemned in sin, but we will rise again and live forever in the presence of God. Because of the resurrection of Christ, we are raised now with him, free from the penalty of sin to live for the glory of God. And because of the resurrection of Christ, we wait for his son. We long for his coming, knowing that because he's been raised from the dead, he will deliver us from the wrath to come. The, the resurrection matters significantly for your daily life. If the resurrection is just a Christian myth, to give you a new mentality. 1 Corinthians 15 says, if Jesus is not rose from the dead, then we are to be pitied above all people because we are left dead in our sin. The resurrection, resurrection is essential. And it is why Jesus does not let the topic go with his disciples. He wants them to understand. He communicates to them again and again. And as we walk through the Gospels, we see his desire to make sure that they know and they hear and they understand. Not for that day. Not for the day in which the disciples heard this because they still didn't understand. And he comforts us in communicating their confusion. But he wants them to know when the fact comes, they will understand. When the fact comes, the Spirit of God will work in them in such a way that they will not only remember and know that He has risen from the dead, but their lives will be changed forever because of it. But at this point in Mark 9, the disciples don't understand any of that. They're confused. Their expectations are quite different. If you remember where we were in Mark 9 as we're walking through the book, Jesus has declared to his disciples that, that to follow him means to give everything for him. To pick up your cross, to deny yourself, and to follow after Christ. To say that all of my life now is purposed in Christ. And just following those statements after Peter has made some foolish communication of his expectations and Christ has rebuked him. If you remember from last week as we looked at Mark 9, Jesus takes John and James and Peter up the mountain. We have what is called the transfiguration as Jesus is transformed. He radiates light displaying the glory of God in him. This is Jesus' full deity displayed to them, not veiled, free, in such a way that does not destroy them, so probably not fully unveiled, because they probably would have just straight died. But in a way that confuses them, 
clarifies for them. And then Peter cries out and says, oh, we should make three tents because Moses and Elijah are next to Jesus. Peter is thinking, here we go. This is it. This is the coming of the kingdom. Elijah has come. Moses is here. Let's make three tents. Let's bring the kingdom in. This could be our home base, our fort. Or maybe he's feeling, let's just stay here. It's done. That's it. Jesus, James, John, and I, we were the only ones that made it. Whatever's going through Jesus' mind, or rather, Peter's mind, we know he's not sure what to do. And he speaks out of his confusion. And then from the heavens come the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And that's where verse nine picks up. Then as they are walking down the mountain from this, he charged them, tell no one what they had seen until the son of man has risen from the dead. And it says the disciples kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean not knowing that it meant he would be dead and he will rise from the dead. In their mind, thinking, that's impossible. That can't be what he means. In their mind, their expectations, maybe not wanting to accept that that could be the truth. But Jesus saw, as you can see in context, has clearly taught them that the Son of Man must suffer at the hands of the elders and the scribes and the Pharisees and the leaders of the Jews and would be killed and after three days would rise. But the disciples remain confused about these facts. They have ongoing confusion. We'll see again in verses 30 and 32 in chapter 9 that as they're going through, Jesus is continuing to try to teach his disciples. And in 30 and 32, you could look just a little ahead. He says to his disciples, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he was killed, after three days, he will rise again. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask. The disciples throughout these chapters remain confused about the resurrection. And we know that they remain confused until the resurrection and the grace of Christ. So we see the ongoing ministry of Christ is that he would save people from sin. The ongoing ministry of Christ throughout the gospel is that he has come not just to perform miracles, not just to change the world, not to bring in a new regime, not to bring in new ideas, not new philosophies, not to heal people, not to do great feats. All of those are just the precursor, just the warning, just the declaration of what he came to do, which was to defeat sin to declare his people justified before God. And Jesus continues to declare that's what his ministry is, and his disciples continue in ongoing confusion, as we see in verses 9 and 10. And then in verses 11 through 13, we see some questions, questions about the expectation of Christ's ministry. You see that? Look with me again at verse 11. And he says, and they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And then he poses a question to them. How is it written that the son of man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased 
as it is written of him. Jesus does what he commonly does. As someone asks a question, uh, Jesus responds with a question, right? He hears the questions of men, and then he gets to the heart of man because he is God with often a question in regards to what they should be thinking about instead of the question they're asking. In this particular scenario, Jesus also answers their question. So let's look first at the disciples' question, verse 11. He says, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? They're, they're asking a question. They're saying, why do the scribes, if you know who the scribes are, these are the men who are responsible for the keeping of the word of God. We learned just a couple weeks in our community groups, uh, looking at the Word of God and the preservation of the Word of God. God in providence has used throughout history men to preserve the Word of God. And the scribes in early times were the men who would make copy after copy after copy of the Word of God. They would record the law. They would know the law. They would write again and again the truth. They were the men who were given the understanding and the knowledge and the authority because they are all over the text all the time. And so the disciples ask, why is it that the scribes, these men who know the law, who know the truth, why is it that they say Elijah must come first? We have no idea why the disciples are asking this question. It could be because they just saw Elijah. So again, they're trying to get at, is the kingdom coming right now? There was Elijah, right? Hoping for a revolution in which they march in next to Jesus. So they're asking these questions. We, we don't know why. We can only speculate why they're asking these questions. But Jesus gives clear answer to their question. And their question is insightful because it's saying, hold on, why did the scribes say this? Well, the scribes say that because that's where the Old Testament ends. Malachi, the the end of the book of Malachi says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. He says Elijah will come first, and what Elijah will do is reconcile the people to the truth and to one another, because if he doesn't, then all God will come to do is judge. And he says, Elijah has come. Jesus answers the question in verse 13 after his pointed question to them. He says, but I tell you, Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. If you look at Luke 1, 16 through 17, we see this Elijah who has come is John the Baptist. Luke declares to us that John the Baptist has come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Luke, John is not Elijah resurrected, but he is the prophet who has come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Luke 1, 16 through 17, it says, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That John the Baptist came, as we've seen, preaching repentance. John came to a self-righteous spiritual people who believed they had everything they need. They looked out and they saw their political enemies. 
or they saw the dirtier Jews, the, the more sinful Jews, and they thought, we are righteous, we are righteous enough, we're okay. And the ministry of John the Baptist was to be the forerunner, the one who would come calling for repentance. We learn in the book of Acts that John's baptism is not like Jesus' baptism. It is a baptism of repentance. He is calling Jews to dis de denounce their self-righteousness, to say they are completely dependent upon God. He is calling holy people to say, we are not holy. But those who see themselves as holy, rather, we know no people are holy. And so John is the one, the forerunner, coming to declare, you must be made right with God. You must repent because the Messiah is coming. And Jesus says that Elijah, the spirit of Elijah, the power of Elijah, was displayed in John the Baptist, that he was the Elijah to come. Now we see also, many, many people will point out also in Revelation chapter 11, you see two prophets coming at the end of time. And those two prophets uh, have very specific things they're doing. One of them is stopping the rain from happening and breathing fire out of his mouth. Another one is bringing plagues upon the world. Plagues of flies and locusts and uh, bloody rivers and such things. And if you're a student of the Bible, you hear those things and, and you immediately go to two men, right? If you're thinking of a man who stops the rain and speaks and fire overcomes things, who are you thinking of biblically? You're thinking of Elijah. Because Elijah was the man who stopped the rain and then prayed for rain and it came. And he is the man that goes before the prophets of Baal and he says, let's see whose God is real. Which God can take this altar and burst it into flames? And I love that passage because he mocks the, the prophets of Baal as they're cutting themselves and flailing all over and doing everything they can and nothing happens. And Elijah says, maybe your God is on the toilet. Maybe your God needed a break. Maybe he's taking a nap. And he mocks that there is no God for them. Because their God is created in their image. And like them, maybe he needs a break. Maybe he's, he's got a potty. But then Elijah comes and prays, and God not only burns the altar, but soaks up all the water which Elijah put around it and everything that is there and declares there is one God, and he does not rest, and he does not weary, and he holds power over all things. So who could be this prophet who stops the rain and breathes fire? Could be Elijah. It could be that God brings Elijah and Moses back in the same way as the transfiguration uh, to declare and to do these things. Could very well be. But it is all speculation. It doesn't tell us that it's Elijah and Moses. And so we, though we look for these prophets to come in the end time, whether it's Elijah and Moses, we don't know. Uh, but many will speculate that that is also a fulfillment and will be of Elijah coming. But we know here in the spirit and the power of Elijah as the prophet who would come to declare repentance for the people, Jesus says John the Baptist is that man. He has come. But he also mentions that they did to him whatever they liked. What happened to the hearts of the people was not repentance alone. It was anger. It didn't restore all things. Because rather than hearing the spirit and the power of Elijah and turning to God, what did they do? They mocked and reviled John in the same way they did Jesus. And then John arrested by Herod 
they did whatever they pleased to him, as you could see just a few chapters earlier in Mark 6, 14 through 29, John was beheaded. And so there's not a full restoration of all things uh, after this prophet Elijah comes. He is not one who is held in honor. He is one who is suffering. The disciples couldn't get past their expectation that Christ would bring maybe somehow some hope, a kingdom that would just be power, a kingdom that would just be declared, a kingdom that would declare the righteousness of Israel. Their hope was they could somehow be those men. And so they looked to the reality which the scribes declared that Elijah would come first. And Jesus says, if you have eyes to see, Elijah has come. He has called the people to repentance. But in that question being answered, that Jesus says, no, God has been faithful to his promises. Elijah and the spirit of power of Elijah have come in John. He was the forerunner of the Messiah. He is the one calling for repentance. In the middle of that, Jesus asks a pointed question. Because as the disciples are saying, the scribes, the keepers of the law, the ones who know the word, say Elijah must come first. What does Jesus ask them? Oh, so funny that you would bring up the word, the law. And his question is, and how is it written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Right, they're saying, doesn't the law say, doesn't the scripture say, didn't the scribes proclaim that what is written is Elijah must come first? And Jesus, before answering their question, asks them a question. He says, yes, how then? Do you understand the law to say that the Messiah must suffer and be held in contempt? How is that going to come about? They're looking to the right place and he wants to point them somewhere else. He's asking them, hey, if you're going to bring up what the Bible says, James, John, and Peter, let me point you to what else the Bible says that you're not considering. As they're saying, doesn't Elijah come first? That's what the scribes said. Maybe in hope that the kingdom's going to come in wealth and power and prosperity without suffering. Maybe that they're good enough to inherit the kingdom. And Jesus says, it's funny that you should bring that up. Now, he doesn't say that, but I say that. That's how I picture him. Probably my own likeness. I don't know how he said it. It's all speculation. just want to make that clear. But he asks a question pointing them to what they must know from the Word. How is it said that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? It's very likely Jesus is trying to point them at Psalm 22, Isaiah 52 through 53, that they would recognize the requirements of the Messiah and what the Messiah would do that they would see, as we have seen this morning in just our introduction, the necessity of the resurrection for their own hope. That he must suffer, that he must die, because that is the promised way that they will be made right. Look with me at Isaiah 52, 13, through the end of 53. I'm going to read the whole passage. It's there in your handout. If you follow along with me as I read, what you'll see here is the declaration 600 years, uh, possibly even 700 years, before Jesus was ever born, 
declaring that the Son of Man, the Messiah, must suffer, and declares what that suffering will accomplish. So look with me at Isaiah 52, all the way through 53, starting at 52.13. And speaking of the Son of Man, the Messiah, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was cursed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What they did not see, what the scribes did not declare, that Jesus proclaims again and again, is that the people are sinful, and the blood of bulls and goats will not cleanse them from sin. What they did not see and what they did not declare as Jesus is declaring it, that he must suffer because why in his suffering we will be brought peace. Our wounds will be healed. He will be pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement laid, the punishment, the discipline that would make us clean. The disciples had expectations and hope for life what they did not continue to account is that they deserved death. They wanted Jesus to rise up in power so they could reign with him. They wanted the glory of God to be made theirs. And what they failed to see is that all have fallen short of the glory of God. None are righteous before him. 
But grace be to God that Jesus Christ, who has risen from the dead, has paid for the sins of his people. It is so sweet of God to give us the narratives of the gospel. To, to make clear to us that not even the physical presence of Jesus with the disciples could cleanse them in such a way that would give them knowledge and holiness and righteousness before God. That even the truths of the gospel coming out of the mouth of the Messiah could not transform them into something holy. Like, recognize that. Jesus shared the gospel with his disciples. And what happened? They were confused. They didn't understand. Even as the gospel is manifest in Christ's death and resurrection, they run. They're scattered like sheep. As he already said they would be. As all have gone astray, they are like sheep running. He has made clear. He is the hope. He is the purpose. As all of the distractions of life might draw their attention, he again and again declares to them where their attention must be. But only, only through the suffering and the resurrection of Christ could their attention truly be there. Only by being made holy in Him. It's why the gospel is always of first importance. It's why as Jesus is walking down the mountain with his men and they're trying to figure out in their head how this could work another way, he immediately draws them to say, what do you think about the Son of Man? And the statements that he must suffer at the hands of the rulers. Pushing back to the fact and the reality that they must depend on Christ. That they cannot be holy and cannot be righteous without him. Christian, it is the same for us. Consider what is first importance. If you look at the section marked application, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, declares what is of first importance. As Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he reminds them at the end of the letter, if you know the book of 1 Corinthians, it is correction after correction. They're confused about uh, the ideas of sexual morality. They're confused about the laws of marriage. They're confused about how they should divide themselves in the church and who they should look at as theirs and not theirs. They're confused about lawsuits. They're confused about spiritual gifts and the function of the church. And as Paul answers all these questions, he goes at the end, at the beginning rather of 1 Corinthians 15, at the end of the book, he says, now I want to remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached, unless you believed in vain. Verse three, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I had also received, that Christ died for sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. It says of first importance that you would understand that Jesus died for the sins of his people and that he was risen from the dead and that all of this did not happen as a mystery because it was already declared in the scripture. It happened as fulfillment. 
It happened as declaration. It happened as the truth. It happened as he promised that it was recorded in the scripture. And according to the scripture, it has come about. The gospel is of first importance because it declares above all things the faithfulness, the compassion, the kindness, the justice, the holiness, the grace, the power, and the wrath of God to come. It is of first importance. It's why I, I bring up even men who are false teachers and state them by name like Kenneth Copeland. Because this man is robbing Christ of glory and trying to claim it for himself. And he will stand in judgment for it should he not repent. Should he not declare repentance and declare the resurrection is not for your health, your wealth, and prosperity. But it is for the forgiveness of your sins that you might be risen in new life. That you might not any longer be enslaved to sin. And you know the weight and the burden of sin. You know it destroys your life. You know it has broken you and relationships. You know that its promises are always lies. You know when you give in, it does nothing but consume you and destroy you. Christian, if you are his, you know the freedom that is in Christ. You know the freedom to turn and flee from those things. You know the resurrection has a purpose now for you. Not just that you can wait for escape, but you can wait in endurance and faithfulness. You have a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A living hope that is waiting for you and a living hope that has current promise and effects on your life now. And I'm not just saying that because I'm not that smart. I can't come up with that on my own. That is what is declared in 1 Peter. If you allow me uh, to turn to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, what is declared here is that you have a living hope and it not only provides you a hope for escape from sin, but it provides you hope and endurance in a sinful world where you are free in Christ. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God who is glorious. Praise Him because He is the Father of Christ, the Messiah. According to His great mercy, why must we praise Him? Because He has been merciful. How has he displayed his mercy? He has caused us to be born again to a living hope that we have hope for life, not death. And why do we have such hope? Again, in verse 3, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, one that will not perish will remain forever. It is undefiled. No sin mingled in it. No confusion. As all we know of life is mingled with sin and confusion in a fallen world, there will be a time when our inheritance is undefiled. Sin will never cloud. Sin will never confuse. Sin will be removed. 
and unfading, a world that does not need upkeep, a world that is not in decay, a world that continually declares the glory of God more and more and more and more and more, and I could keep going, but it would just be annoying. Forever. And it is kept for you in heaven. Because of the resurrection, you have hope in life of a life coming that will no longer be perishing, no longer be defiled, and will never fade. And how can you be confident of such a living hope? Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. How can you be confident? Because the guard of this is not you. It is him who by God's power, not your power, not your will, not your strength, by God's power, you are being guarded. How? What is the instrument in which he guards you? Through faith, the gift which he has given you, dependence upon him, trust in him, belief in him. By his power, through the means of faith, which he has delivered to you, you now are guarded for this, and it will be revealed in the last time. And you think, that sounds like we're just waiting. And the Spirit of God, knowing that we would need hope in this present time, he reminds us, verse 6, in this you rejoice, in this you sing praise, in this you gather together in song, in this you encourage one another, in this you give an account for the hope that's within you, in this all of your life feels free, you can rejoice because you have been free from sin, you have been free from the wrath of God, you can wait for this to come. It's like a man who found out he has a billion dollar inheritance. Nothing can ruin that day for him. He's just waiting, rejoicing. Tomorrow, it's mine. And even better, this is not like a billion dollars. This is eternal. In this you greatly rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, what is our life like now as we live in the hope of the resurrection? We see four things, five things rather, I want to point to you. Well, four truths about our trials. Temporarily, we rejoice because of eternity, but now temporarily. First, all your trials, all the struggles of life for you, Christian, are temporary. For a little while, and they are necessary for a little while, if need be, or if necessary. He is not messing with you. He's not doing things to mess with you. He is like a good father as he has planned and promised all things and shown that his promises are faithful. He is as necessary, functioning in your life, temporarily, necessarily, in a way that feels grievous. You have been grieved, this is all verse six, you have been grieved by various trials. Temporarily, by necessity, in a way that grieves you, that, that is painful for a time. I think often of Hebrews 12 and it says that all discipline is painful for a time, but it leads to what? Holiness. It leads to the righteousness of God. It leads to perfection. 
clarity, cleansing, healing. Though it is painful for a moment. And so your life currently is temporary, and as necessary, you will be grieved by various trials. See, God is so wise, He can choose for you personally various trials. He doesn't have three tracks. Does it say, okay, I got the like big suffer track, I got the little suffer track, and then I have the like all you can handle is raising teenagers track. That's your that's all of your suffering. You're a weak human, you can't handle anything more than just the difficulties of prepubescent humans. That's where we're gonna have to drop people. I can't come up with more options. I'm just one guy. No, he is God eternal. It says various trials. It doesn't say three tracks of trials. Various trials, trials of varying kinds. Why? Because he is all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing. He knows every hair on your head. Whatever is coming about in your life, it is temporary, it is necessary, it is grievous, and it is dictated particularly and purposely for you. In his love and compassion, Temporary, necessary, grievous trials that vary in kindness and compassion toward each of us with a purpose, with a distinct purpose. Look at verse 7. So that, why does he do this? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is dictating in your life right now temporary, necessary, grievous trials so that the faith which he guards and he has given you and he has put in you will be shown real to who? You. That gold, as precious as gold is, when you burn it, all the gold comes to the top. And as your life is in the trials and the frustrations of life, what happens? All the goodness, all the kindness, all the grace, the fruit of the Spirit, the compassion of God, the character of God comes to the top of your life. It burns away the sin which owns you no more. And you then, being tested by fire, are being shown through the grace of God in suffering the glory in which He has accomplished because of the resurrection of Christ. And Christian, through all of that, verse 8, rather, at the end of verse 7, all of that is being done. So at the end, when Christ comes, you will be found to praise and honor and glorify Him at the revelation of Christ. He has given you freedom in Christ to be free from sin, and He has orchestrated in your life a greater and greater freedom from sin that will be temporary and is necessary and will be painful and is custom-catered because He knows you in a way that will not crush you, but will keep you guarded by faith, which He will continue to reveal to you through His working and His trials and His fire, that He is faithful so that when the end comes and our hope is there, what we've been waiting for, He will be honored and glorified and praised for the work He has done in you now because of the power of the resurrection. You live for that. You long for that. 
you don't always place your hope in that. Do you? Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the only one that needs First Peter. When he says that we have been given mercy, praise him because we have been given a hope in the resurrection of Christ. Christian, the resurrection matters. Not just because it will free you from ever from sin, which is great and glad and glorious and we rejoice in it. But it will continue to perfect you in the presence of sin because you are freed from the penalty of sin to the glory of Christ when he returns. Live for his glory. Live for his honor, for his praise. Let his faithful work in your life show fruitful in what he does because it is not a matter of your faith. It is a faith which he has given you and he guards with power that he tries and tests to put through the furnace, that he will display in your life. And you will rejoice now with a joy inexpressible, is what verse 9 says, though you do not see him. And one day you will rejoice with a joy expressible, fully expressed before his face at the revelation of Christ, because all he has done. Be faithful. Take the trials of various kinds. The teenagers and the turmoil, the angry neighbors, the unfaithful in your life, those who hate you, those who mock you, those who ridicule you. Take his kindness when he disciplines you because of your sin and rebellion and hear him and strengthen your knees and pick up your droopy arms because he loves you and he is kind. While you and the world might not be able to get over your sin, he knows and has paid for the penalty. Let your hope be in Christ. Because of the resurrection, you do not need to have confusion. You have purpose to display his glory forever. Praise God that he would allow us to be participants in such things. Let's pray that he would give us endurance as we long to be. Father, we thank you that you are God who is good and faithful. I thank you, Lord, that you always function rightly. I thank you, Lord, as I think of my own life, and the valleys and the high points, the struggles and the failures of rebellion and faithfulness. And Lord, I would be a constant mess if I was dependent upon my own strength, my own will, my own power. I thank you, Lord, that you have not only given your word to compel us, but you have delivered your promises in Christ to confirm for us that we would all have assurance that you will judge the world in righteousness. And as our hope is rested in you, we are not those who will be judged as unfaithful, but faithful because of Christ, faithful because of his righteousness not shown faithful through our hills and valleys of life, but you will be shown faithful in carrying us through all for the glory of your Son. I pray you would help us not to just dwell on those things this morning as our thoughts are clear in the truths of the gospel, but we would commit and devote our lives to dwelling on those things always, that in the mundane of life, we might remember the glory and the power and the gift of freedom, of your death, 
and resurrection for the salvation of your people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.